Hello. Welcome to the Deep Overstock Fiction Podcast, where we invite a writer published in the Deep Overstock Literary Journal to read and discuss a piece from our archives. Yes, this is the exact same structure as the New Yorker Fiction Podcast. Thank you, Deborah Treisman. I'm your host, Z.B. Wagman, and this week we have Jonathan Van Bella on the show, reading a story published in the Structures issue of March 2020, The Mother Dome, by Dr. Maeve Barba. Now, if it took my mother 10 seconds to, in total darkness, determine whether or not I was inside any given triangle, and if my mother went about this systematically, not wildly running triangle to triangle wherever her fear compels her, screaming and calling for me, checking triangle after triangle, it would take her 30 seconds to check each column, bottommost triangle to topmost triangle. This story was chosen by Jonathan Van Bell, who has published more than 10 pieces in the Space Exploration, Fairy Tales, Folktales, and Fables, Paranormal Romance, Nautical Lore, Dreams, New Arrivals, and Origin of Life issues of Deep Overstock. Jonathan Van Bell is a content creator for Outlier.org, an online education company from the creator of Masterclass. He has previously worked as a bookseller at Powell's City of Books. Jonathan is the author of several books, all available online, and is currently working on his first book for Deep Overstock Publishing, Zenithism. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, the first question is, why did you choose this story? It's a good question. I reread several pieces in the back issues of Deep Overstock, which is just an excellent journal. Uh, I rather reread the opening paragraphs of several pieces just to kind of get familiarized with some of the pieces I hadn't read uh, recently. And the Mother Dome in the Structures issue was the first piece in which I didn't stop reading. I just, I was carried to the end. It's it's a trance-like piece. It's unearthly. It's mathematical, faintly menacing. And I think those are the features of a good mystical experience. And that's the kind of writing I like. Writing that suggests, even promotes, mystical experiences. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. This piece is, it's a very odd one. When I first read it, um, or actually really every time I read it, my eyes start to almost blur with the words and I just kind of fall into the rhythms, especially of the mathematics in it. Yeah, it, this is, it reminds me of a, so I love Philip Glass, the composer, Philip Glass. And it reminds me of a libretto from Philip Glass, specifically like Einstein on the beach. If you ever hear that music, there's a lot of numerical repetition, one, two, one, two, one, two, three, and so on, so on. It's, it's abstract. It's atmospheric. Um, it also, it's, I just think of this kind of as an architectural fever dream. You don't know where you are, but you're getting the measurements of this abstract space. Uh, also reminds me of Borges' City of the Immortals, which is in his short story, The Immortal. It's odd. It's like a puzzle that you can't solve. Very much so. I feel like so much of the narrative of the piece is the author or the narrator trying to solve this puzzle or, or presenting even more problems for, or even more puzzles for the reader to solve. Yeah. For the mother to solve it in in this case, it seems like, you know, this, which, which you wonder why is the narrator relating to the mother in this bizarre way? You know, what is this relationship about where the narrator is trying to hide from the mother? Yeah. It's very odd. I feel like the, the 
big emotional aspect of this piece is the narrator's relationship with the mother. Mm-hmm. And yet it comes across in this very weird, very bizarre way. Yeah, it, and I think it, it takes place in, in darkness, I, it says. It takes place at night, a lot of this hiding. And it's just a, an uncanny, borderline, creepy thought that at night, the mother, while the, char- the narrator is sleeping, presumably, the mother is methodically searching these triangles. It's sort of going and, and the narrator is trying to optimize in a way to be never found. And it's just this, it is, that's why it's like a fever dream to me. It's this sort of threat that has to be mathematically calculated and prevented, which this piece, what I, what I love about this piece is how symbolically open that is. Um, it's one of the symbolisms I took away from it, at least, is, and this might be overreading, is the idea of mother nature and our human, our attempts at the technological evasion of mother nature, this constant, you know, while we sleep, we try to keep things uh, orderly. While we're in this fragile state of our existence, we're trying to kind of push back the, the diseases, push back the, the threats, really. And how successful that is, this story doesn't, this story never gives us that conclusion. I think that's a great metaphor for this piece or a great reading into this piece, especially with the geodesic domes being such a central part of this piece. Um, it, those really act as a symbol of human creation. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, please. I was just, just going to say, for this interview, I looked into geodesic domes a little bit because I didn't really know too much about it. And I got on a, a kind of a Wikipedia rabbit hole. I followed the auto, the biography of Buckminster Fuller, who's the inventor uh, of the geodesic dome. And Buckminster Fuller created something called the Dymaxian chronophile, which, and I'll just quote Wikipedia here because this is fascinating. Fuller, this is the Dymaxian chronophile's Fuller's attempt to document his life as completely as possible. Now here, this reminds me of a little bit of this mother dome story, this sort of uh, precision in one's life. So his attempt to document his life as completely as possible. So uh, Fuller created a very large scrapbook in which he documented his life every 15 minutes from 1920 to 1983. And he was religious about this. So the scrapbook contains copies of all correspondence, bills, notes, sketches, clippings from newspapers, etc. Uh, so the Wikipedia says here, the total collection of this Dymaxion chronophile is estimated to be 270 feet worth of paper. It's said to be the most documented human life in history. So when I found that, I felt this is very much connected to the mother dome theme of a kind of, I don't know, uh, feverish calculating life that's almost trying to prevent in Buckminster Fuller's case, you get a sense of fear of death in the fact that he's documenting every 15 minutes uh, for for 63 years here. That's amazing. Um, and it's incredibly impressive. Uh, Fuller is one of those people who 
when he appears in history, when he appears in things that I read, he always seems like a a creation. He seems like a character out of a book because he just he had his finger in so many different things. I mean, he really is a one of the first real futurists of the modern movement. Um, he his work inspires so much science fiction. And and the domes are these domes, the geodesic domes are the perfect kind of representation of him. I mean, these things have been depicted in science fiction ever since the 60s when he popularized them. Yeah, and apparently he had some plan to make a geodesic sphere that would be filled with some sort of lighter than air gas and, and sort of buoyed up on the atmosphere, something like this as a kind of cloud city. I don't know if I read that right. But yeah, a geodesic sphere, a geodesic dome. And I'm not sure it's him, but also the idea of the Matryoshka brain, which is a kind of uh, massive uh, orbital. It's it's it, in the solar system. It would be a sphere that perfectly captures all the light rays from the sun. So a kind of energy capture optimizer. And so he was very, as you said, futurist. He was extremely productive. He was a futurist. Um, and it's, it's his whole life can be a podcast unto itself for sure. I don't know much about it, but the little bit I dipped in, uh, I mean, as someone could turn the Dymaxion chronophile into a podcast, I'm sure it'd be strange. Um, but to, to bring it back to the mother dome, uh, I do have that sense of technology being a barrier between the mother and the narrator and, and the, just the, why? Why? You know, I, I, I don't want to do psychoanalysis uh, on the narrator, but but it just you ask that question. Why? What's going on here? Is it uh, is it some kind of murderous thing? <laughs> is it a uh, is it a is the mother beneficent, but the the person hiding is s- somehow just doesn't want to be found for some reason? Um, and the, the hide and seek in this mathematical game and you know for the reading you'll see the just the constant measurements you know 120 triangles examined per hour uh you gave in decimal points you know 1,570,796.33 feet it is uh hard to make numbers poetic but this does very much so. Very, very much so. Before we get into more of it, shall we take a break and listen to you read the piece? Absolutely, yes. I'd love to. All right. Here's Jonathan Van Bell reading The Mother Dome by Dr. Maeve Barba. The Mother Dome. Maeve Barba. As my mother is equally afraid of small spaces as she is of large spaces, I will build my mother a geodesic dome. Its outer wall comprised of two walls, essentially a dome over a dome, three feet of space between the two domes. The dome is then a very large space, but comprised of many small spaces. Because a geodesic dome is made up of many triangles, and because if the two domes are three feet apart, we may put narrow landings in every triangle so that the inhabitant or visitor might sit, rest, or hide in any one of the many triangles. I am about six feet tall, but bent in half, 
I fit in any triangle with three sides of three feet, area 3.9 feet. To make the geodesic dome, rows of slightly smaller triangles are arranged upon slightly larger triangles, which are arranged below slightly smaller triangles, and on and on until the pattern forms a dome. This is oversimplified, of course. In reality, the larger triangles form pentagons, and the smaller triangles form hexagons, and the dome is formed by rows of pentagons followed by rows of hexagons, and so on. But this does not change the fact that we're looking at triangles. If my mother is able to reach up to feel with her hands something up to seven feet tall, then my mother will be able to reach up and feel around from my bottommost triangle to any second bottommost triangle. If I provide her with a stick three feet in length, she will be able to poke around in any third level triangle. Now, if it took my mother 10 seconds to, in total darkness, determine whether or not I was inside any given triangle, and if my mother went about this systematically, not wildly running triangle to triangle wherever her fear compels her, screaming and calling for me, checking triangle after triangle, it would take her 30 seconds to check each column, bottommost triangle to topmost triangle. My mother could then, within reason, at 10 seconds per triangle, three triangles per column, examine two columns per minute, or 120 columns an hour. If, given that this is the Pacific Northwest, and at this time of year we have roughly eight hours every night of total darkness, I believe my mother could, if she is rational and efficient, examine 960 triangles per night. One, I will never hide in any triangle which my mother cannot reach. Two, I will never switch triangles at any point in the night. When darkness falls and I enter the dome, I pick one triangle and I stay in it. Three, on any given night, I may enter the dome from any direction and climb into any triangle, so long as I don't violate rules one or two. On any given night, then, my mother's odds of finding me are dependent totally on the size of the dome. Given a dome with the diameter of 100 feet and the height of 50 feet, and therefore with a dome surface area of 15,707.96 feet, we divide 15,707.96 feet by the area of one triangle. So 15,707.96 feet divided by 3.9 feet equaling 4,027.68, rounding up to 4,028 total triangles. Given that my mother is only capable of searching the first three triangles in any given column, and given the diminishing number of triangles, a loss of six per hexagon every row moving up, the largest number at the bottom of the dome, and the smallest number being the dome's topmost point, one hexagon at the top. Row by row, a dome with 4,028 triangles, as my mother would only be capable of searching roughly 10%, or 402 triangles, of the surface area of a dome 50 feet high. At 120 triangles examined per hour, it would take my mother less than half a night to examine every triangle in all three bottommost rows of the dome. Inevitably, she would find me. Now, if we doubled the height and diameter of the dome, so D equals 200 feet, H equals 100 feet, to get a dome surface area of 62,831.85, we then get 16,110.73, or rounding up, 16,111 triangles. Searchability is diminished to 7%, because the dome is higher 
my mother then is capable of searching 805 triangles. Again, piece of cake for my mother. But if I designed a dome 1,000 feet in diameter and 500 feet in height, dome surface area 1,570,796.33 feet, then my mother must contend with 402,768 total triangles, 5,000 searchable triangles. Her chances of finding me in one night are reduced to roughly one night in five nights. And a dome of 100,000 feet in diameter and 50,000 feet in height. Dome surface area, 15,707,963,267.95 feet. My mother has an estimated 5,034,604 searchable triangles. A dome of 5,034,604 searchable triangles has a total volume of 261,799,387,799,149.4 cubic feet. The same volume as if Lake Michigan flooded Lake Huron. In a dome of this size, my mother, on any given night, has a one in 5,594 chance of finding me. If she spends every night systematically examining triangles, maintaining her rate of 960 triangles examined per night, feeling around in every triangle in the dark, and poking at the upper triangles with a stick, I will see my mother only once every 15 years. All right. Well, Thank you, Jonathan. That was wonderful. Thank you. That was wonderful to read. So jumping back into this, we were talking a little bit about the the mother in the Mother Dome. Um, and you have a, a lot of good thoughts, uh, especially about the Mother Nature aspect of it, Mother Nature versus technology, which I really love. I want to talk a little bit about the mother as a character here, because the mother, I feel like, other than the narrator, is really the only character in this piece. And I would say that maybe she's the only character that we get any real sense of an emotional journey for. Yeah, I, I think that's that's the case. I think the, I mean, it would be a stretch, but you could call the geodesic dome itself a character, um, a kind of uh, intermediate uh, barrier, but but that might be of a stretch. I think literal characters. You're right. Yes, the, the mother and the narrator, and the journey of the mother is is subtle. Um, did did you have any particular points on that journey that you wanted to highlight? So for me, the thing that I connect the most to is the mother's fear. It's the the narrator uh, is constantly talking about how if the mother does this uh, does this search and does it very kind of by the numbers, they'll be able to find the narrator in X amount of time. But throughout these instances, these descriptions of the mother's methodic searches, there are lines that reference the mother's fear, like not wildly running triangle to triangle when, wherever her fear compels her, screaming and calling for me. So to me, these references to the mother's fear in or the mother's potential fear in this search says that the narrator 
is almost doing this to torment the mother. I see that. I think another element of the mother is she's methodical, as you said. And in the, in the line, uh, one of the early paragraphs, the narrator says, I believe my mother could, parentheses, again, if she is rational and efficient, examine 960 triangles per night. So presumably the mother's examining all these triangles. It seems like uh, fairly methodically, which suggests there's an element of rationality and efficiency in it. And that is a weird thing with fear, because with fear, I think usually you're not rational. You're not as rational. You're you're responsive. You might be efficient in certain ways because your adrenaline's pumping. But but the rational part is um, you're more instinctive. I think so. It's a kind of interesting mix that the mother would be rational, efficient. But again, this could just be a function of the narrator's uh, basically calculating optimization. Like if if the mother is that way, here's how long it will take her. It doesn't necessarily apply to the mother, but it, but it, the mother does seem to fulfill some of that expectation of searching methodically, which is more on the rational or efficient side. Although searching so methodically at night in this situation does seem the opposite of rational it seems it, it seems uh insane to, it's a weird practice if anything if i heard someone literally if i heard someone was searching hundreds of triangles in a geodesic dome every night this is why it's a metaphor uh i would think this person is not rational but um yes i would definitely agree with that and that's why i feel like this piece is written kind of with the assumption that the mother will act as the narrator sees fit. Mm -hmm. Because I don't believe that we ever see the instance of the mother actually searching. It's always my mother that could then, within reason, search. Mm -hmm. Or, or like, given that my mother is only capable. Like, it's right. it's always under the assumption that the she will search. Mm -hmm. So I find this almost, it reminds me of a child or really of a teenager doing something to aggravate their mother or to cause fear, cause their mother some amount of concern for their own safety or something. Which is why, mm -hmm. for me, the last line of that piece really hits home, the... I will see my mother only once every 15 years because I mean, the mother is frantically searching this, this structure over and over again for their child. And yet will only be able to see their child once every 15 years. It just, it's mm -hmm. kind of heartbreaking. And, and you know, the mother's never named. So there is this deep, this impersonality, this total, you know, uh, just my mother, no name. So I think that's also heartbreaking element of of the relationship between the, the narrator and the mother you know which is goes to the idea that everything's sort of abstracted yes uh, definitely paired away it's it's this piece i think you're right in labeling it as very abstract i mean there's there's a couple references to the real world uh, it mentions that it's set in the pacific northwest mm -hmm. um but other than that i feel like this piece this piece could just take place in a math test. <laughs> mm -hmm. Although it's got, I, it's got more soul than a math test. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. um, it mentions Lake Michigan, uh, flooding Lake Huron. So the, yeah, a few non abstracted place names, a few actual 
names to get around. But other than that, you're right. Yeah. I mean, it could be set on Mars for all all we know, basically. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And with a geodesic dome, that would be fitting. Uh, Martian geodesic dome. It really would be. Uh, I, I feel like anytime we see pictures of potential space habitats, they are in the shape of the geodesic dome. Yeah. And, you know, I again, I, I have to recommend to anyone listening to this, listen to Philip Glass's Einstein on the Beach. That, to me, is the the opera. Not It's a contemporary opera, so it's very trance-like. It's not this sort of, uh, you know, volcanic Viking uh, stereotype. But it has that, it's sort of like, could be the soundtrack for this piece. Um, and it, I... Uh, come from a logic background, philosophy background more generally. And that's, I think, one of the things that what I liked about this is just the the logical precision, the, because, you know, I think it's definitely an art form to take something so non-art-like, and I think I may have mentioned this, so non-art-like, and make it fascinating. And construction measurements have to be perhaps the least art like that you can think of but in this setting it um it's done well so uh, bravo to the author very much so and i would i would second the philip glass recommendation philip glass is my favorite writing music um you that's such a i do i same here it always is it i am always able with that music to just kind of key into whatever i'm focusing on it it's very trance-like, as you've said. Yeah, I uh, I wrote an Egyptian story, and I used his uh, opera Akhenaten, which is my favorite of Philip Glass's operas. Uh, it's about the pharaoh Akhenaten who tried to revolutionize Egyptian religion, make it monotheistic or monolatric, whatever. And it it's just a great piece, too. But this one is more like Einstein on the Beach. But really, all of Philip Glass's work, even the, quote, minor ones, recommend definitely definitely um and i think the length of this thing is just to switch to to some more sort of qualitative as quantitative features which is appropriate i think it feels right it's a nice length it doesn't there isn't the intention to sort of drone on about numbers i don't think that's the point which a lot of times that could be with someone doing numbers they're kind of trying to get the monotony of of just numbers this this uses it very haiku, very precise. No, I would definitely agree with it. Um, I think if this piece was any longer, it would almost be unreadable. <laughs> the, mm-hmm. the, the trance-like aspect of it would slip into a, a, a boredom mm-hmm. aspect sort of, of a it. a stupor aspect. Um, uh, it was too yes. long. But, I mean, I, I don't know. I trust this author. I think it could have, there could have been, uh, they, they, I, you know, I wouldn't have predicted necessarily this uh, ability to take construction measurements and other things like that as a as a trance as a as a f- story that carries carries you along. But so this author could surprise and do a, a sequel that also just to this that carries you on. Uh, I've never, you know, this is I wanted I I started a book years and years ago called uh, I think it's called the Corrections. Um, Thomas something or other. It reminded me of that. It's about, uh, I wish I'd read it because I could say more about it, but I read enough to say enough this, to say this, which is it's about 
the German philosopher Wittgenstein, who towards the end of his life wanted to do a piece of architecture. And I think it was for his sister. And Wittgenstein was a kind of eccentric philosopher, an eccentric guy. And the book is one continuous paragraph. I don't think there are any paragraph breaks. Uh, it might be two parts, but both parts are just single paragraphs. And it's sort of like that Philip Glass uh, element, too, about Wittgenstein's thought process in constructing a, maybe a, a piece of perfect architecture. I don't want to say too much for because I'm probably not giving the plot uh, accurately. But uh, that... I'm just, it's just a whole genre world that I'm I'm feeling with this one that reminds me of the corrections. Uh, my Bobby, the, another Deep Overstock editor, he actually recommended the corrections to me years ago. And sorry, Bobby, for never finishing it. But there's a lot of book homework out there, and uh, but this makes me want to finish it if that helps. I don't know if I will, but this makes me want to, which is something. This piece really feels like it was written with a soundtrack in mind, and those numbers are the music of this piece. Yeah, I would say that. When you're reading the numbers, actually sound them out. Actually say the numbers. Because in the vocalization of these numbers is part of the music of this piece. The sound of these numbers is meant, to, I think, to be heard. And, and that's the trance. If you, you don't just gloss over them, really, when you read them. Don't just go, oh, big number, next word. Read the numbers. It's it just... A great Rorschach. I think you could just keep going with this. The the, the enumeration of rules, one, two, three. The uh, it's just more of this, please. I, I think more of this. Uh, yeah, yeah. I've read more of uh, Doctor Barba's pieces, and they often play with numbers in a very odd way. Um, and so every time we get a submission by them, I am always looking forward to it. Yeah, you know, and it the I was just taking a look at the uh, Dr. Barba's uh, bio. Love this. A doctor of astronomy, Barba looks into space and considers neither the small as too little nor the large as too great. For the lover of stars knows there is no limit to dimension. It's a great bio. It really is. Um, and I feel like, their experiences as they presented in their bio really kind of trickles into their work very well. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's, it's a consistent artist, I guess. Yes. Consistent, say the least consistent <laughs> artist. But I think, yeah, I think that's, I mean, one could say more, but I think I, I will leave up to the listeners to read it for themselves, to take uh, away what uh, just some of the amazing uh, moods that this will evoke and the trance that they might find themselves in. It, it's an absolute wonderful piece to read. Yes, I enjoyed it very much and I enjoyed reading it. All right, well thank you for joining us, Jonathan. Where can our listeners find more of your work? Well, it's my pleasure, Zach. My work is on Amazon. I have three books up there. I also have a website, um, jonathanvanbell.wixsite.com forward slash home that's long, and eventually I'll get the domain name, but for now I'm just saving money. Uh, but yeah, you can find my work there. Wonderful. And can we talk just briefly about the your book that just came out, Zenithism? 
Yes. So zenithism, it's, zenithism. yeah, although I don't, you know, zenithism, zenithism, tomato, tomato. The zenithism is about, uh, it's a philosophical work, many different genres, a dialogue, short stories, essays, aphorisms. The basic proposition of the book is that in an infinite natural system, infinitely many maximally advanced natural beings will evolve. And that takes a little unpacking. It sounds a little bizarre, but I think it's a non-controversial claim when you get down to the nuts and bolts um, that, you know, we evolved here on Earth. Uh, given a large enough natural system, other uh, species will evolve. And in an infinite system, literally speaking, uh, you'll probably hit a cap of social development, technological, scientific development. And so it's just a hopeful vision of a kind of universe. Uh, but, you know, not a, I didn't want to dry philosophical piece. I wanted to short stories in there, too. So, yeah, it's a mix. And that's that's the work that came out. Well, it's a fantastic book. And it was just published by Deep Overstock Publishing. You can find that on our website at deepoverstock.com. Wonderful website. That was Jonathan Van Bell reading and discussing The Mother Dome by Dr. Maeve Barba from our Structures issue published in March 2020 with cover art by Leanna Moxley. You've been listening to the Deep Overstock Fiction Podcast. Our theme music is the song Take Me Higher by Jazzar. Join us again in two weeks and don't forget to submit for our next issue, Animals, before November 30th. Visit deepoverstock.com slash submissions for specific guidelines.